Welcome to Uncommon Sense. Craig Kamanis and Dean Holmes host Uncommon Sense, where they discuss key business ideas on how to improve financial planning businesses. Thanks for listening and on to the next episode. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Uncommon Sense number 38. It's uh, Craig Kamanis and Dean Holmes here with you again for another exciting episode. And uh, don't you just love a special guest? And, uh, you know, we've been on the hunt for a little while now. It's just been me and Dean and we feel, well, maybe we're boring everyone. Let's find someone to bring some excitement to the group. And ladies and gentlemen, we're very lucky to have Tim Lane, who's a partner with a crew, joining us this afternoon. If there was a marketing sign, it would have Tim Lane since 1999, because that is as long as he's been working with financial planning practices on succession and valuation and all of that type of thing. So we're going to unpack all of that today. So welcome, Tim, but I'm going to throw over to Dean to uh, kick us off today. How are you, Dean? Hi, G'day, Craig. Uh, Very good, thank you. Uh, Thanks to all of our listeners as well that are listening in live. So if you do have any questions or comments, uh, you can use the chat box in LinkedIn uh, to let us know uh, that you have a question and we'll look to answer that live. Obviously, you can find us afterwards if you don't get to ask any questions. Uh, so, Tim, uh, the biggest question that every advisor wants to know is what their business is worth uh, in the open market. And so tell us a little bit about what your ro- what your role is that you do at the moment in terms of valuations uh, and then let it let all the advisors know the the million dollar figure for their practice. Yeah, so so we do a lot of work. The key things we do is we do valuation work, we do succession work, we do business sales and sort of other related projects around that, bringing shareholders in, bringing shareholders out. Um, you've asked a very difficult question in a very short amount of time there, Dean. Um, to sort of in a nutshell, you know, a, pract- a financial planning practice is, is is either sold as a client base, so it's sold as a group of clients with no- nothing else, or it's sold as a business, or an or a, or a part of a business, a piece of equity of that business. So, what we see with client based sales is they, you know, they tend to be in the two point five to three range, but it's very very um, clear now that. Um, any transaction will be based at the client level. So you, you'll apply different multiples to different clients. And okay. so when people are quoting multiples now, it's it's a, it's like a homogenised uh, multiple based on re-rating a client base. So that's if you sell a client base. And then if you're selling a business as an entire, that tends to be something probably over $2 because um, you need all the stuff to come with it. Yep. That will predominantly be sold on a you know on a multiple of ebit which will be you know five to six maybe above six in certain circumstances um but it'll be based around its profitability what it's it's not it's important to understand that the two numbers actually converge roughly around 1.6 million anyway so so there's no you know a lot of advisors ring me up and say like you know what 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 do i do is it rr it sort of doesn't matter if you run the practice well those numbers will eventually converge and probably to a degree the ebit multiple will um will exceed that correct um, and that's if you're hitting something like a 35 percent EBIT yeah. at the end of the day, that those yeah. numbers start to be the same thing. Three times yeah. recurring revenue. Well, actually, they actually invert. I mean, yeah. it's an interesting thing to discuss, but really, if you just think purely about the mathematics, you've got something growing at three times or mm. something growing at six times. Mm. 
So right. one's going to one's got to mathematically get bigger than the other. Some say yeah. so. Um, so that's just the way that. Um, and again, it depends on the margin you throw that extra profit to the bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. And that's an interesting point that you that you raise, like for us to think about in terms of selling a client base versus a business. Because when you sell a client base, the your brand, like your brand, for an example, or or your great business processes, don't really matter because you're selling it to another business that is most likely going to put it into their brand and their uh, their processes. Yeah, so that's a really good point. So when we talk to people about initially, we actually try to work out what is the likely transaction you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Am I going to sell a client base or am I going to sell a business? Now, if you're going to sell a client base, what we say to them is we've got to get it looking this way. You know, it's mm. got to be able to be integrated into someone else's business. It's got to have a good pricing strategy that can go into someone else's business. That's a different equation to like if I'm, I'm going to sell my whole business on its profitability. There's other things you would need to do there. Not dissimilar, but it's just slightly nuanced in that world. Yeah, maybe the extent, so just continuing on with that theme of, you know, selling a client base, selling a business, but then as we're reading in the press and stuff, Tim, lots of stuff going on now about then other parties investing into the business. Um, so it's not really for sale, but I'm bringing in a partner of a larger scale to invest in my business. Yeah, yeah. How so, does that change things when firms are looking at what they've got? Well, we sorry, we all know who those culprits are. Um, yes. So, um, well, look, they're what you call strategic investors and they will they will actually you know they're they're not going to give you generally a multiple of any recurring revenue they're going to give you they want a return on investment and it looks like x is the question what's the question about that they craig is it is it a good idea is it a well it's probably not is it a good idea but then you know i guess the extension of it is like lots of people say oh you know but my business isn't for sale today so I haven't prepped it for sale. So I haven't stripped the guts out of it, if you like, mm. to get a big EBIT number. Um, and so if I was going to do that, that it would look like this. And they're trying to sort of convince investors that maybe, you know, you need to pay me on a different EBIT or because that's not the true EBIT. Like how do you normalise? What do you do and that type of stuff? Yeah. So so the reality of, of valuation and sale is you, you, you it's done on what we call a normalised EBIT. Now, the... I actually predicted this a couple of years ago in Professional Planner. What The effect of the Royal Commission has been really quite interesting because what it's done is it's cleaned up the, the practice normalisation, generally speaking. There's no rebates. There's no grandfathered. You've got pure revenue streams and you tend not to have um, large amount of private stuff going through. It doesn't mean you yeah. have none. So so what we've seen over the journey is 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 that, um, we're less and less doing lots of normalisations in the valuation space and in the sales space because yeah. mostly the numbers are pretty pure now. Um, but but the the reality is people will value your practice and they will buy your practice on its normalised EBIT. What 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 do we got to be careful of? Is this word EBIT is 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 a bit misleading? Yeah. In the sense that EBIT is what it is. It's earnings before interest and tax. What evaluation is actually based on? Is, is future maintainable earnings. So the EBIT is the proxy for future maintainable earnings. So what, what it's saying is when when I my other mate buys my practice, he's not going to pay for my car. So that 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 comes out and becomes, you know, the, the additional profit is part of future maintainable earnings. That's that's what the concept is. Um, people get a bit wound up in EBIT and you do normalise, 
but it's actually a future maintained learnings. What I'm buying is the future profitability, not the past. Yes. That's actually a really good point. I think everyone listening should note that down. That's yeah. That's, uh, and can you, in that same way, Tim, can you can you explain why the interest bit is is backed out? Just because everyone throws around the term EBIT, but I'm not really sure that everyone can explain why interest out of anything else is backed out of the equation. Yes. Yeah, so, so interest. So, so valuation is 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 supposed to be done exclusive of the uh, the structure it's in so 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 if the structure has debt do we lose dean do we we might have lost dean just keep going mate. Yeah, yeah. so that so that so the, the valuation is is unrelated to the structure it's in so you separate the structure from the valuation and then then if it's so so the interest doesn't affect the valuation but mm. actually the debt does so mm. so you know here's my headline valuation less my debt that's my net um, and then what you'll actually find is that it's, it's in, a, in a perverse way, it's actually gets a higher return because of the debt because it's geared. Yes, but it's yeah. supposed to say this is what it's worth, less the debt. And and so if you have interest, interest is not an operating cost. It's a struct, uh, It's a yeah. financing cost. So that's yeah. why they do it that way. Yeah. So you're, back, you're kind of backing out both. You back out the interest and then you're working out like the NTA of the entity anyway, the, the value yeah. of the asset minus the... The actual liabilities that you might have in the in the in the company, anyway. So you've got to be a bit careful. So, so what what tends to happen in a transaction world is that um, is it's bought out of the entity, so you don't actually buy the entity. So, mm. so that that because this is the other thing people don't understand, which is a really interesting thing to get to prepare yourself for this world. Am I going to sell my entity, or am I going to sell my business or my client base? And they're actually quite different transactions. One one has an NTA aspect to it, which you're talking about, and one doesn't. Yep. Mm. And so, so a couple of key issues in that are one, when like when you do a goodwill or a, a goodwill valuation, it's actually inclusive of the assets required to run it. So, so the working capital component is included in that. It's not on top of. Mm. The only thing that's on top of is what we call surplus cash. Now, the surplus cash you mainly see in financial planning practices is. I've left all this money in my company because I don't want to pay tax to get it out. Happy days, happy with that. But we will sometimes in a transaction add that to the price because, you know, rather than pull it out as a dividend and pay a lot of tax on it, we'll give it as a capital sum with none on it, which sort of makes yep. a lot of sense. Um, so, so, yeah, that's that's where the structure and the, and the actual valuation need to be disaggregated and then put back together. Um, but it's important. A lot of people, like there's a lot of, untruths out there. I had a call from an advisor once and said, so if I if I value it using RR, that means I don't have to take into account the debt of the practice. I said, no, no that's, <laughs> not right. that's not right. I mm. said, you know, but, you know, there's some sophisticated people who make these comments. So um, it, it, so it's it's valuation, less, less what we call structural debt plus surplus assets is the true valuation yep. of an entity. And just the multiple times the profit is the uh, times the future maintenance is the value of the goodwill. Mm. Yep. Now understood. It's it's always good. You don't you don't always know these things until you go through the exercise of selling your business for the for the first time. And and often advisors have built had their business for ten years or twenty years or thirty years and only are looking to sell it at the end. What's some of the lessons that we might have about? structuring a business in general to 
uh, get ready for sale. Like if I if I want to sell my business in 10 years time, should I be doing things today in terms of my entity or structure to get ready for these events? Well, you should. I mean, it's well, one of the things that are, that's really obvious is, is if you fall out. So if you fall out of the small business tax exemptions, your tax rate's going to go through the roof. It'll yep. just go right off a cliff. So, you know, um, you've got to be careful of the $2 million turnover and, and, and the $6 million test. So they're the two things making sure I'm – but my view is you should be actually for the, you know, even seven years out, you should, you know, at the end of each financial year, almost write yourself a little information. This is the this is my practice. I'm going to sell it this way. This is the structure I'm going to use. I'm going to sell the assets or I'm going to sell the company. Yep. Um, blah, blah, blah. And then you're prepared because what happens is a lot of the time is that people – actually make the decision to to sell or to to retire whatever it is actually quite quickly they go mm. oh, mm. and and then you find that they're really not prepared they haven't done their small their tax calculations they haven't worked out all these other bits and pieces where if we say why don't every end of every financial year and the other interesting thing is in bigger practices it's easier to do this with multiple partners you sit down and say look let's value it and, you know it doesn't have to be drop dead accurate this is the thing this is our future if someone comes and goes in the next 12 months, it's this, this is how it's going to be done, this is the mechanism, that that creates a lot of problems. The real learning, I think, Dean, is that you you don't want to be doing these things in an emotive state, and that emotive state might be a divorce or you're sick or something like that. It's really difficult to manage people through that process with these numbers in there. And, and the, the problem you get is that people build up a belief about evaluation, which can be very, very wrong. Mm, mm. Especially in the divorcing scenario, because if you imagine that husband and wife and be the husband, the advisor, like you've you've spent your time talking about the value of your business because you're building wealth as as a family together. And but the moment you've got to get this valuation for the divorce thing, that reality of what the market would pay for the business at that point in time is, is could be remarkably different from what you were telling your wife um, for the last 10 years that my business, what my business is going to be worth if all my plans to create wealth go yeah. to plan. So, so, and then the other thing about matrimonial valuations, which can be very difficult, is that there's some other principles around those that are unrelated mm. to the industry. So value and use and these other things. So, so what you might sell it for isn't always what it's going to come up with on a valuation. And if the what, for example, the wife has a view of that value, it can cause a lot of lot of tension. And it just, but it's all about understanding education and communication early on. Um, and then you've got the other thing that I think we're sort of dancing around a little bit here is you can get some higher prices through um, what we call so. So through, um, you know, a sales process. So if we could get a lot of people interested in asset, it, it can push the pricing up because yep. you've got to remember it can be strategic for some people. And then the other thing, and I've got, I'll do some work on this in a vlog, but the other thing is you can get, um, you know, for example, you get these structured buyouts where they buy 50 now and over the journey mm. with burnout clauses. So you will get higher prices on those because you can protect yep. the value. And so... And then you know, in the media, they just that all gets hosh-modged into you know one, one number, one and everyone goes, "Oh, they're all worth this." Mm. And I mean, I had a bit of a cathartic moment early on in my valuation career because 
I was a young chartered accountant, came into the industry and people said, these are worth, it was, believe it, this is how old I am. This will really date me. They were worth two times revenue then, not three, two times. Yep. Anyway, so I said, that's fine. Where's, when, when does anyone ever talk about profit here? Like that was mm. my to this guy. And, he, and a, uh, a guy said, well, they're actually five times the EBIT, Tim, is really what they were. And that, so you can see the two's gone to three over the journey and the, and the, and the five's gone to six. Yep. Yep. Um, Tim, the other question that's interesting is at the moment, you know, you see a lot of single advisor businesses mm. that sort of have no plan. And so what they're starting to do is find another single advisor business that they trust and sort of go, how about if we kind of put something in place to, to back each other up should something happen? And then the conversation extends to, well, if I die, what happens? Um, if I became totally permanently disabled, what happens? Yeah. Um, or, you know, eventually I just want to retire, what happens? You talk us through your experience of, because like what we've sort of been suggesting to them is maybe if there's an unexpected death that you have an agreement that it's purchased at less than probably what market value is because you may not be expecting to buy it at that time, but it creates value for the family. Um, maybe there's a different valuation if it was something that was more expected. Can you... And talk us through, in your experience, the ways that can potentially work. What um, best? It's it's a bit of a horses for courses argument that one. I mean, yeah. my my view is you, you to be brutally honest, you don't really want to be a sole practitioner long term. Yeah. Because because mm. because I mean, I've got I've got an unrelated. It's not a financial planning practice I'm working with, but but if you go from you know two to one the valuation gets challenged because you haven't got enough people. Um, and But conversely, as you get more people around it, the sort of solidity of the valuation grows. So, and look, there are plenty of really good sole practitioners out there. I'm not saying it's bad to be a sole practitioner, but it has extra challenges that are, that are bigger practice. So, no, really what a sole practitioner, if they're good, should be bringing someone in up underneath and, and yeah. managing their, mm. their position. So, but I have done, like I... I had a similar situation. I worked with a guy who he was a sole practitioner and our solution was, and he had another practice that was going to, you know, if he died, they would back him up. Um, in the end, we just merged him into that practice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's also funny that you, you wouldn't, you shouldn't expect, I suppose, that if you're a sole practitioner, like a, like a barrister, like a specialist sole mm. practitioner, there's no equity value in in that because the value dies when the when the barrister dies, and so I think sometimes with these, if it's a sole practitioner and a very small um, number of staff around that particular person, is also a flip around and say you don't have to expect there's a huge value from your business. Just go and get some life insurance. Like that's actually a cheaper way than maybe merging Tim with another business. Oh, if you if you're managing death, you got to be. You've got to be careful, though. One of the things you're alluding to is is this concept of commercial goodwill versus personal goodwill, mm. and and so a barrister has, in my view, um, personal goodwill because it's him. Yes, yes. And look, to a degree, an advisor has some personal goodwill, but because of the way the fee structures work, there's an argument that there is some commercial goodwill that you mm. can sell. But you're right that in the and again the advent of the royal commission, you don't get someone in that place in ninety days, the fees go. So yeah, it's just clients with no revenue and no advisor. Yeah. Mm. And we've had that chat. We've had that chat a couple of times on Uncommonsense yeah. about the, uh, I think we did it last fall, no, Craig, about this, the the stark reality of, of 
dying and then ongoing service agreements with no advisor to service them, there's obviously an issue there that that results in fees getting fees getting turned off as well, which is obviously a concern. Yeah, so, uh, so I think you've got to and look to it. Yeah, so you've got to manage that issue. But I, I'm I'm a great believer that we need to be doing more and more internal succession and less and less business sales. Yeah, yeah. Um, just because you know. And there's a bit of a myth out there that I won't get a higher price. But if you do the maths of bringing a successor through and it grows nicely because of that, they're actually about the same. Mm. And so, and, and you've got to remember that's a lower risk transaction. So, but, you know, and the other thing I think we need to really be aware of now is the market to purchase these practices is, is just significantly more sophisticated now. Like when I, when I, First game, you know, we do a contract, put a three times revenue in it, a bit of a clawback, come back 12 months later, yep, that was fine. Whereas we go through, you know, due diligence, IMs, you know, uh, it all goes down to the to the granular level on the client base. Um, and the people, you know, and there's a sort of, in my mind, there's almost a theoretical cap at the, you know, it's sort of conversely the other way. The bigger guys are actually not going to overpay. Mm. Yeah, they'll, they'll just walk price. away and buy a different business. Yeah, yeah. they'll go to that price because they, they know exactly where their value is and they won't go above it. Mm. And so you can see the market just disappears above that unless you get some, you know, rogue. So so it solidly hits a cap. So, and we did a couple of transactions in the last two years where we, we really saw that. Mm. And, I, you know, yeah, I, I think that's, that's really a feature of the market. So... You can get competitive tension and higher prices through, you know, a transaction process, but the market is just so much more sophisticated now. Yep. You're going to have to really earn that. Mm, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And just on the the internal succession, then, um, obviously, we're seeing a lot of the younger people who are prepared and want to do it, not being able to afford to do it immediately because of. Cost of living's up, debt's up, interest rates are up on mortgages, private school fees, et cetera. The vendor financing, is that are you seeing that structure in those cases more or is it like, no, I don't want that, I need you to borrow money or a bit of both? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like, yeah, I think the answer is yes. I mean, there's there's di diverging views on this. Like some people say don't do it. Um, my sort of theory on it is is if you're still in the practice with this person while this vendor finance is going on, you know, so what? That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's when they leave it too late and, the, you know, the vendor finance is hanging over the end that you get some problem. I mean, again, people get – you've got to be come back actually to the mathematics, the mathematics of these practices. So if you've got a six times earnings multiple, that's a 16.66% return. Now, when um, interest rates are two – you know, you could easily pay that off. Now, even at six, so you've got six goes to interest and 10 goes, say, 10 goes to principal reduction, but it's still going to, and, there's, and you're going to say there's some tax somewhere, Tim, I know that, but but I'm just taking yeah. a simple argument. So so they are fundable. Um, and then look, so I think if to answer that question a different way, Craig, um, yeah. is people, people, what you need to, succession is about do the plan and then work out how to fund it second. Don't assume it can't be funded because there's debt structures you can use there's vendor finance there's external capital in certain you can use so it is you know we solve that problem every day of the week so yep. 
Um, and look, you know, there's some practices have done some really innovative thing. I think I spoke with a guy called um, David Andrew at the FPA and would have been pre-COVID. They'd done some, had a really good crack at that with Macquarie Bank, did some sort of um, facilities that did the, the deductible and the non-deductible. Yep. So, you know, it, it's a solvable problem. Mm. My experience is people say, oh, they can't afford it, so I don't talk to them. I think that's the wrong approach. Yeah. Mm. And I can tell you from the younger advisors that I might talk to is that they're they're in that camp or the, of not necessarily wanting to or wanting or being able to take on the debt to buy out the business owner the challenge is that they're fully capable of starting their business uh from scratch and so that's the conundrum if you're not engaging the your younger advisors early enough they're actually going to be looking over the fence and going well this thing's expensive i'm not I'm going to have to buy it off them in the future and it's going to be more expensive. They're not mm. talking to me about it. I could just start from scratch. And so this is one of the, the challenges in succession, and we often do this, is that sometimes you have to discount early to get them in mm. because, the, you know, I, I, in my own accounting practice, we we lost our financial planner well, a month ago yep. and it was for a completely personal reason. He had an overseas relationship and he went there. But... The point being that, um, you know, without him tied in to equity for the long run, I got exposed to a, to a risk. So, you know, it's important to lock these people in. If you have to discount the first bit, and it, so, again, it comes back to just run your numbers. Yeah. So if you, you might discount the first 5%, but if it grows right, your actual total number is going to be at or about the same level. And you could remember, the minute you got those people in, your risk has dropped away. You've got an automatic market for your exactly. staff. Yeah. So, um, and look, I've got hard. I've just done this whole process in my practice where some of my equity is being sold down with vendor loans, Craig. Mm. So, um, and you know, <laughs> immediately it's hard early, but then I've looked at it now. I thought, oh, that, that worked pretty well. Mm. You know, it's, it the all it's it's these succession is a difficult conversation overall. Whether it's with staff wanting to come up or business partners equally is mm. I see so many uh, shareholders agreements or buy sell agreements that are in draft format and they've been in bloody draft for five years because oh, right. they got stuck on a couple of different issues, which in mm. my view, sometimes it's lawyers, sometimes it's them, but they're all one percenters. So instead of dealing with the 80% of the document that could be agreed on and then getting something in place, Hmm. All the a couple of these one percenters end up delaying the entire signing of the document, which is even worse. Yeah, no, it, we're gu I'm guilty on that one because you just you, you d does your head in a little bit. But you're right; it need, you need to get it. Get, yeah. And look, look, it's a whole thing about um, you know progress, not perfection. Mm. You know, I say you can always change it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and but you know, if it's eighty percent right, it's sort of right. Like it's yeah, yeah, right, and. Yeah. And so you just got to be, um, you got to practically move on. And but I think I just want to say this thing about succession that's really important. Mm. You know, you've got an asset minimum return of sixteen point six six percent, sixteen point six six. That'll fix most problems. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you actually do the mathematics, mm. it actually works. People, and that's why I get, you know, and this is one of the arguments versus a capital investor versus debt. You know, a capital investor, you know, they're um, they're going to cost you, you know, 
16. 16.6%. Yeah. yeah. Debt X tax is going to cost you a lot less than that. So now you've got some cash flow issues around that. But so, you know, an external piece of capital is probably the last piece of funding you want. And it makes sense in certain strategic places, but, you, you know, it, it shouldn't be your first one. Your people, lining your equity to your people is the most successful strategy in the game. And, yep. you know, um, professional services firm, you, they, you know, they they grow and develop off the activities of the principals. Mm. And so if they if you align their profit to their outcome, it'll go well. Yep, absolutely. So you touched on one thing uh, that we wanted to talk a little bit about, Tim, about the structuring of businesses and debt. So yes, yes, one, right. this is a really interesting insight that we've had. We were chatting about it last week about how uh, debt has to be repaid. We all know that. And sometimes we've in our businesses, we've acquired debt and then we've had three years or six years or nine years interest only. And lo and behold, the bank wants us to start to repay the principal. And we've had and so talk to us about the differences in essentially that my business is in a trust versus my business is in a company when we have debt that needs yeah. to be repaid. So there's actually, I'll make one other comment on debt yeah. before we go there. So debt is a legitimate tool for succession too. Yeah. And so one of the things that people forget about is you can actually gear some of these entities up a bit to get some of the capital out to make the buy-in price for the um, uh, for the next generation uh, you know, more palatable. I can see Jamie Melville from Macquarie just frothing at the mouth when I say this because yeah. we have a different view on this argument. But but my difference with, it, with Jamie is that, you know, you can have some interest-only periods to build up buffers. He, he, he says, mm. be careful, they spend on a lifestyle. That's fine. Um, but so so that's the first thing. Don't forget about using internal debt rather than external debt. Yep. Against but your point is, if, you, if you've got a, a loan with large capital repayments, uh, you know, you need to carry that debt in a corporate structure because you're going to, the principal repayments will be made at 20, you know, in, in, in 25 cents in the dollar is all you have to pay on the profit before you pay the debt down. If it goes out to an end shareholder and um, you know, through a trust, it's likely going to be double that cost. So, mm -hmm. so I think when we did our practice, I remember having a Barney with the existing bank at the time who will remain nameless. Who wouldn't give us the, you know some structural stuff we wanted to do i worked out the extra tax we would pay um would have been sort of in the vicinity of three to four hundred thousand dollars because of the structure and i said so so debt goes in a corporate structure um and then you know you can pay it down people the, the only real downside of that is that is that you will you know develop a large pool of franking credits in that company that will be difficult to get to yep but you know, it's half it's half the tax rate. Half the tax rate. And, and at the end of the day, you've got to be careful because in some of the arguments for putting them in these trusts, the client bases and stuff, is capital gains tax. You know, I can get a better the only thing the company can't get is is a uh, is what's called the general discount. So it can still get the active asset, it can still get the retirement exemption, still get the 15 year rule. Mm. So, you know, understanding where that fits in as well is 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 quite important. And then the other thing too. And at the end of the day, even if you pay the corporate tax rate, you get a franking credit. Yeah. And so, Craig, that's the other thing about corporate versus non-corporate structure. When you yep. pay tax outside that structure, it's gone. It's gone. You're never going to get it back. 
it's paid and gone. Whereas it's in a corporate structure, you've got a franking credit that could possibly be redeemed through a financial planning strategy yep. um, down the track. So, yep. so, and look, the other thing about it is to, um, you know, mostly, you know, the, the point about companies and tax is companies are a parking point and allow you to park profits at a particular tax rate and then do something with them. And so even if you don't have debt, it's still a better structure in my view to use a company. Mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely. And so the the big lesson and insight that I had is that if you just think about that you've got to repay a hundred thousand dollars in debt, yeah. in a company you only need a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars worth of profit to repay a hundred thousand dollars of debt. Yeah. If you if your same structure is in a trust you're probably having to pay up to maybe the 40 or 45% tax rate mm. because you've drawn a you've drawn a salary already. So unless you've got, you know, yeah. a thousand children at, that are all 19 years old, <laughs> the reality is you're paying <laughs> the 45% tax bracket right. to repay that hundred thousand dollars of debt. And corporate beneficiaries don't help that scenario because the money's got to get back into the yeah, so, company. You know, so the bucket company strategy doesn't work because you can't transfer the cash and so yeah you're absolutely right and um yeah so so i think understanding your structure and the, the, the biggest problem is people tend not to um like structures start because you know i'm small and i didn't need it you know and that's mm, that's mm. common with accountants like i you know i'm guilty of this that, that plumber just started as he didn't need a company and then, you know, three or four years later he does because mm, it's right. Mm. So, um, and the other thing about it too is though, you know, somewhere down the track you're going to grow to a point where you need to do some form of succession planning. Yeah. So you've got a company, you've got a you've got what I call a unitised structure that can bring people in and out, whereas like a discretionary... You can't family, do it in a discretionary trust, yeah. It's a nightmare. Because all you can do is have a partnership with a trust and it's just, you know, I glaze over at that point. Mm, it's me it's messy when we know a company is very, uh, like, it's pretty obvious from ASIC's perspective who owns the shares and what the shares are able mm. to do and the control as well. So I mean, like, I, I, did, a, I did a seminar on capital gains tax and, and this guru really, he, he was right. He said, if you've got... If you want to peel a structure apart, the two partnerships of the discretionary trust actually is is the better structure because you can, you know, if you want to separate down the track. But the whole point is you don't. <laughs> you, you yeah, we want to we want to build profitable businesses, which means yeah. we need more people within our business, a planned succession around staffing and bringing those staff yeah. in as owners to grow a you know a practice that's going to be around for another 10 or 20 years yeah so that, that's really um uh, really important to to do and think through early on um because it'll save you a lot of i mean the hardest thing is like if, if you get into a transaction and you you're actually dealing with tax issues halfway through the transaction that's mm. a disaster because because yes. that means you have to go back and renegotiate with the person purchasing say could you do this? And mm. what you really mm. should be doing and what we push our people to do, when you do an IM to sell a business, we say the structure of the transactions we're doing is this, you're buying, we want you to buy the shares of this company, we want you to buy this client base out of this company. That's the structure Yeah. because we already know. Because you, you've already you, thought about it, yeah. Well, the issue is if you get halfway down, you want to change the structure of the transaction, your negotiating position is diminished. Mm. 
And yeah, so I want to discount. I'm paying a discount now, Tim. If I if you want to renegotiate. And look, the other thing is, I you know this this is a true story. We did one, and uh, we were see, we were ninety days off getting the fifteen year rule. Mm, mm. Right. And so, and I I did the numbers with this guy. I said, look, look, we just got to string it out. The money, the money, the, the difference in the value value to you is just massive. But that was good. We went back and 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 the purchaser was happy to do it mm. after the first of January. I think it was. So yeah. So but that's the same with all the small business concessions, Tim. Like you can sell something for if you come under the six mil, selling it for less, you'll end up with more after tax than selling it for six million and one, and Correct. not getting yeah. the small business concessions. Yeah. So so that's why I said it, you, you know your tax rate falls off a cliff, mm, mm. and that's why understanding um, understanding that and <laughs> the other horror story I. It was like I had a guy going through them and I can't remember how they said, but anyway, he sold his house and put mm. the cash in the bank and he was renting yep. for a while. But of course, that meant it meant he breached the six million rule because yep. the house doesn't go into the six million rule, but the but cash, cash does. does. Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is so you, and you've got to be so careful of these things and have some leeway. So it's mm. really, but my point is know what it is and then, and then. Uh, you know, then you've got an ability to get through the transaction the right way if you've got yep. to do it later. Um, and, you know, this isn't a financial planning event, but I had a friend of mine who's a partner in another accounting firm and they had a like a distribution to a trust two years ago that no one remembered about and the whole calculation blew up mm. because it breached this and it breached that in the law and so that's why we've got to be very careful with these things it's similar in a funny way it's similar to you know i had this circumstance the other day if you like even one dollar over your non-concessional cap triggers triggers a problem so yes, yes. So, so so you know you, you just have to be careful that you know everything and where everything is yeah don't get yeah. ready and that's the whole element of getting ready for getting ready for sale and planning in advance if you knew you're going to sell and you upgraded your house or put more money into super so that then you're below the cap like that's planning as an advisor and a business owner that's planning our own stuff but we've got to work with our accounting partners to make sure we uh, you know are aware of these type of things as well yeah if like if i had it my way every practice would have a valuation at the 30th of June yep. and a documented sales strategy or succession strategy with an IM. Mm. And if something happens during the year, you just pull it out. There you go. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Because um, a lot of people, the other thing is people are unaware when an offer is going to come along. This is the other, you know, oh, I wasn't going to sell this, Tim, but this bloke's come and said this. I said, well, where are you at with that? And whereas you can be much better prepared if mm. you do mm. that. Yeah. So, and it's inevitable one of those, oh, you're either going to sell it or do a succession plan. We're yeah, all... correct. Or you're going to end up buying something because something comes along that you you want to buy. So, which is succession anyway. So, there's right. plenty of plenty of different options. So, that's yeah. been great, uh, Tim. Good conversation, Craig. Do you have any final thoughts or questions? Sorry, no, no, Craig, no. you did have one question on normalisation. Did you want me to just do thirty seconds on that? Yeah, we can I'll perhaps do on that. Like normalisation from the perspective of you know normalising a director's salary or those kind of things. Um, you know, we had some debate recently in terms of. Would that director's salary be different based on the state that you sit in or not? 
um, and that type of stuff. So just interested in your view on that. Yeah. So, so the the principal normalisation we do now post Royal Commission is market salaries for uh, for principal advisors. Yep. Um, we try to go to third party like a, a Hayes or something like that. The major difference, though, if I was brutally honest, is regional versus uh, capital city is where we see them. Like you don't tend to put a capital city value uh, um, salary on a, uh, you know, on a, on a regional area. There are nuances. Sydney's normally higher than Melbourne, um, but not by a lot anymore. So, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, the major normalisation is, is salaries because you've got to remember most other costs and most other things in a financial planning practice sorry bar maybe you own your building you might be being a bit cute with your rent yeah. um you know are pretty standard so we don't see lots of normal so we don't there isn't a lot of normalization goes on really compared to years ago yeah okay very good well that's probably a great way to finish i think the one thing to learn from this whole conversation then tim is that when you're at this point you need to seek professional advice um, because there's lots of moving parts that could have either positive or negative implications to this. Um, but I actually love your comment, Tim. Everyone on the 30th of June should have a valuation and everyone should have an IM ready to go because you just never, ever know. Mm. Yeah. So there is just one other quick closing comment that I, I think is important is um, you shouldn't really do succession and or sale of your business on your own. And mm. the reason I say that is, one, you need you know, you need the, the the technical ability that we have. But at the end of the day, it's selling your business or doing, it's an emotional thing. It's your business and it's your baby. And you sometimes need someone like Tim Lane, for example, say, you've got to settle down on this one. Yeah. Because like, yeah. that comment he made wasn't actually a negative comment. It was just a comment. And so, you know, I've seen people without advisors blow these things up on things that they an advisor would have stopped them doing. So, you know, don't do the journey on your own. Do it with yep. somebody. Yep. One of the common ones there, Dean, we're going to 45 minutes because it's a great chat. But one yeah, of the yeah, yeah. Ones, <laughs> rock on, Craig. One of the common ones there, Tim, is like, I don't want my business name to change. I've seen so many sellers go, I'm willing to sell my business, but you can't change my business name. Um, yep. And mm. months and months and months go on and then they end up selling it for less and the name changes anyway. <laughs> yeah or they you know they um they get wound up on uh you know you know some compliance issues or stuff like that and you go look because at the end of the day there's no riskless transaction for a buyer or a seller and so so you like wound up on the wound up on you know you've said the wrong thing about my business which is just a comment it's not really a derogatory yeah. Yeah. you're right brand um, and, and the other thing is, I mean, I've got a bit of a brutal saying, uh, say, you know, you know, what's the relevance of your view of your business? Absolutely zero. <laughs> Nothing. Mm. It's got no relevance to what you think it's worth. The market, and I've got another saying, I say, we don't educate vendors, the market educates the vendor. So you know, they'll get the offers that are there and that's the market. I can, we can do certain things around that, but, but that's the market talking. If it doesn't like that, you can you can um, you can talk it up all you like, but it, that's the market. Mm. Okay, Dean, you can wrap it up. All right, good. that Let's was great, it. Tim. Uh, very good conversation. We've got a lot to learn, uh, all advisors and practice owners, about what it looks like to get ready for sale. Uh, we've done themes of planned and unplanned succession. We've done themes of what the valuation is and why that why that matters and how to fund. Sorry, sorry, yes, one more thing. 
So we have a, if you look at our website, we yeah. have a process, we call a triage process. If you've got a valuation or succession, you can ring us and just yep. book it, a 15-minute conversation. It doesn't cost anything. It's just an education piece. So if you need help, reach out. Sorry. Good. Thanks, Tim. We'll put your uh, website in the chat and the um, and the LinkedIn. Really appreciate that. That would be good for people to uh, go through this, this process. So thanks very much, Tim. Uh, thanks, thanks, Craig. Uh, great questions. And we'll see you all uh, next fortnight for the next episode of Uncommon Sense. Thank you. Thanks, right. everyone.